Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, welcome. Thank you. Uh, we have a great series you're doing right now, and it's called uh, Romans Set Apart for the Gospel. Yeah. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the power of the gospel and freedom that comes from it. Uh, help me understand what that means, that freedom. Yeah, I mean, freedom doesn't mean doing whatever we want, because as you and I know, uh, you know, a person may exercise their freedom in taking uh, some kind of a narcotic, but that was the last act of freedom they ever had. Mm -hmm. They're enslaved after that. And, and the world is filled with enslavement. And what the freedom of the gospel is, there's this power that comes that enslaves us to Christ, which is the most freeing thing in the world. Amen. So we're looking forward to a real liberating message yeah. over the next few moments. And uh, we'll join Dr. John Newfeld in just a moment as we continue our series, Set Apart for the Gospel, our study in the book of Romans, right here on Truth and Life Today. I've been studying the book of Romans in these big hunks, these big, you know, four chapter sections. And you might wonder the wisdom of doing that because Romans is one of those detailed books which require us to spend a great deal of time and attention on individual words and concepts. But having said that, let me give an illustration. You know, once in a while, if you take a, a hike somewhere, it's really nice to get a map that tells you what the entire terrain looks like. And that's the illustration. What I'm trying to give you is a sense of a map of the whole. And I've already covered Romans 1 to 4, which I call the heart of the gospel. In the heart of the gospel, we learned that the bad news is far worse than we could have imagined. Our sins are greater and a greater offense to God than we could ever have thought possible. But then on the other hand, the good news is better news than we would have ever imagined as well, because God sent his own son to pay the penalty for our sins. And then we're also told how to appropriate this grace. That is, we do it by faith and by faith alone. That's Romans chapters one to four, and I've called that the heart of the gospel. When we come to Romans chapter five, all the way through to chapter eight, that's a section that we would call the power of the gospel. And that's what I wanna talk about today. It's the power of the gospel. Now you might wonder, power for what? And so let me give you four sections which actually correspond to these four chapters. Romans chapter five tell us that the power of the gospel is there to free us from the wrath of God. Romans chapter six tells us that the power of the gospel frees us from the power of sin. Romans chapter seven tells us that the power of the gospel frees us from the enticement and enslavement of our own flesh or our lower nature. And Romans chapter eight tells us that the power of the gospel exists to give us the Holy Spirit who will empower us to live as Christ wants us to live. So let me take it one step at a time. There's a freedom that comes in the gospel and that freedom is the freedom from the wrath of God. Watch how Romans chapter five begins. Therefore, on the basis of everything that's been said in the first four chapters, on the basis of the heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since our sins are forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ, and we appropriate that by faith, that's what Romans one to four is all about. Since that's true, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Romans chapter five begins with this wonderful revelation. The revelation is this, there's no animosity left between you and God once you have received forgiveness, peace with God reigns. 
It says, through him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So we stand in this, and then it adds, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. I'm gonna stop here because there's a common misunderstanding that's often felt among Christians because they don't know the gospel well enough. I remember years ago teaching in a Bible college overseas. I had a student at the back and, and I asked the entire class whether or not God causes Christians to suffer because of their sins. And this young man at the back of the class said, absolutely. I said, young man, stand, please, would you? face the entire class and please explain to the class why it is that Christ died. I mean, either he already took the punishment for your sins or he didn't. And if he didn't, we're all still lost in sin. Well, young man looked a little confused because I don't think he'd ever considered that before, but that's what Romans 5 is all about. Do you understand how powerful the gospel is? The animosity between you and God is done. Listen to how it describes this, verse seven. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, before we had done anything, either good or bad, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more will be saved by him from the wrath of God? The rightful justice of God is taken away. That's the, the theme of chapter five. I mean, that's the first glorious power that we receive. I've got this freedom. God's no longer angry with me at all. Now, the last part of Romans five has this amazing uh, part in which it tells us that, you know, death came into the world through one man. That's through Adam. But that forgiveness has also come through one man. We are either reckoned in Adam or we are reckoned in Christ. So Adam's sin is counted to the rest of us or Christ's righteousness is counted to those who believe. It goes like this. Imagine uh, you're on a football team and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's fourth and goal at the one yard line and then you run your play and you score a touchdown and you say, yeah, we made it. And then suddenly there's a yellow flag lying on the field and you're told that you gotta go back 10 yards. And you find out that one of the linemen jumps offside and you say, well, listen, penalize that one guy, but don't penalize all of us because of the sins of one of us. And, and the referee will then explain, listen, you all wear the same team jersey and you're actually in solidarity with each other. And that's what the book of Romans chapter five tells us. We are in solidarity with Adam. His sin counts for all of us. In the same way, when Christ died for our sins, his righteousness counted towards all of us. So think of it this way. Here's the power of the gospel. When you or I, who have come to believe in Christ, stand before God in the final day, and we ask ourselves, how will I do on judgment day? The answer is, I will be judged not on the basis of my deeds, I will be judged on the basis of Christ's deeds. You see, I'm in solidarity with him. And that's the, the first powerful thing that the gospel applies to my life. The wrath of God has been removed and Christ's righteousness is all that remains.
We've been uh, studying Romans chapter 5 all the way to chapter 8. It's really about the power of the gospel. And we've noticed that in chapter 5, Romans has taught us that one of the wonderful freedoms that's given to us in Christ is freedom from the wrath of God. We're, we're saved from God's wrath. We're, we're saved from the final judgment. And God's face has turned towards us in favor. There's a second freedom that's also found, and, and that's in Romans chapter 6, and that is we are freed from sin. Now, now watch what it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, if you're wondering where Paul is going, it, it just all makes sense up to this point in time. Paul has so strongly made the case that our sins don't count against us, that the only thing that is put to our record is the righteous merit of Christ, Christ's deeds rather than my own count. Well, if that's the case, if all sins are covered, why wouldn't I just go on sinning? In fact, there are a lot of people who are afraid of the gospel message because of that. They think, look, the gospel message must inspire sloppy living, sinful behavior. People saying, well, you know, Christ died for me, so I can do whatever I want to do. It's all going to be forgiven anyway but they don't take into account the power of the gospel. And there's a power not only freed from God's anger and his judgment, but we're freed from sin itself. Watch this again. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I'm reading chapter six, verse two, by no means. And, and by the way, by no means is about as strong and negative as you're gonna find in the Greek language. It's actually meganoito, like no way, Jose, never, you bet you never. Uh, and then he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, there's a new phrase. See, some of us didn't realize that, that, you know, when I converted to Christ, at the same time, a power was given to me in which I have died to sin. And then here's the illustration. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, there are some theologians that call this union with Christ. So think about Christian baptism. You know, in most cases, when we baptize people, we baptize them by immersion. And immersion is a symbol. So whenever you put someone down under the waters of baptism, it symbolizes burial. And in effect, what we are saying of the person that we're baptizing is, this person, when they came to trust in Christ, their old way of life was buried. It's done, it's gone. And a new way of life is raised even as Christ was raised from the dead. That's the symbolism in, in baptism. But there is a theological term that a lot of theologians you know, uh, imply in this, and it's called union with Christ. When we were converted, says Romans, did you know that we were united with Christ in some mysterious fashion? We were united with him in his death and we were united with him in his resurrection so that our life and his are hid together. And that's something, you know, it's, it's fascinating, but, but watch verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and Paul is saying that actually happened when you were converted, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
In other words, the old way of life is now dead and a new way of life has now been raised within us. That is the power of the gospel. It is the power to say goodbye to a past way of life and to embrace the new way of life that is now opened up to us. It's, it's as if as, at every conversion, we walk through an open door and the open door leads us to a world that is unlike the world that we were in before. That's the power of the gospel. Now, having said that, and by the way, that's what a lot of theologians call a positional truth. It just happens to be true. I mean, some of us are saying, well, I, I don't know whether I'm fully experiencing that. And, and that question comes later. The question now is, is it true? Well, in fact, it is. That's what's happened to you. And because of that truth, in verse 12, we read, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. See, what many of us don't understand is that prior to our conversion, sin had a power over us that was completely intrusive. It controlled our lives. We were unable to say no to it. But now, because we've been united with Christ, this power has been given so that we no longer have to live within the passions of sin. And so, therefore, as we continue to read, in verse 15, Paul will write, What then are we to sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. By no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. So what he's really arguing is that, you know, whenever we sin, it's not really a free act because the very moment of our sinning introduces us to a slave master and that's called sin. Sin then reigns over us and makes us do things that we wouldn't do were it not for sin. But on the other hand, we have now received a new master. And this new master introduces us to righteousness and rules over us in righteousness. That's the power that has been given to us. So when Paul writes in verse 20, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But the other has now happened. Now that we are slaves to righteousness, we have been freed from sin. Of course, it doesn't mean that Christians don't sin anymore, but it does mean that a new power has been given in which every single person who hopes in Christ now has the power and the willingness to say yes to Jesus and to no to their former way of life. That's the second power of the gospel, freed from the anger of God and freed from the power of sin. We've got two more chapters in this section that I've entitled The Power of the Gospel, and that's Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. And chapter 7 is this amazing chapter that introduces us to another freedom. This time, the freedom has to do with our own flesh. And if you don't know what the flesh is, it's a common New Testament teaching, and it comes up in the letters of Paul quite frequently. And it's important that we define exactly what it is that we're talking about. 
See, in conversion, we've received a new nature and a new heart so that we now desire the things of God rather than the things of sin. That's, that's the power of the gospel. But there still is something alive in us called the flesh, which militates against the new heart that we've received. I mean, think about it this way. There are all sorts of uh, people now that have introduced a metal that's called memory metal. And what you do is you, you twist this metal in a number of different forms and then you add heat to it and it goes back to its former self. And, and that's what happens to our own flesh. The flesh consists of these repeated patterns that we were born with. They are patterns of sinfulness that are a part of being born into sin. It's this innate rebellion to God which seems to take on a life of its own. And so when Paul begins to speak about this in Romans 7, he wants to give us the idea that even while I say no to sin, I find that there's another law at work in me. This is the law of, the, of sin and death, the law of the flesh, which is constantly militating against the law of grace. So this, this struggle between uh, what, the, what the flesh wants me to do and what the new nature wants me to do is always there. When Romans 7 begins, it says, do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, when Paul speaks about being free from the law, he doesn't mean that we're free from the Ten Commandments. Like, for instance, you know, the Ten Commandments said, don't commit adultery, but now you can go ahead because you're free from that stuff. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying in Romans 7 is that every single time the law is given, before we know Christ, it just results in this disobedience. We see the law and we instantly rebel against it. The law seems to excite rebellion, but now that I'm in Christ, the law becomes a pleasant thing to look at, and yet I find myself sold in sin in the flesh. Nothing good lies in my flesh, so there's a warfare that goes on in the life of every believer. So you might say, where's the power of the gospel? Well, the power of the gospel frees me from this tendency towards rebellion, but the flesh is still there. So what am I supposed to do? So by the time we get to the end of Romans 7, Paul writes this, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's, that, by the way, is the new nature of the believer. We delight in the law of God. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the big question. How do I gain victory over these lower nature sins? Things like lust and incessant anger and whatever else they may be. And the answer now is found in verse 8 because verse 8 presents us with this grand freedom. Every single believer, when they said yes to Christ, when they believed him for the first time, received the Holy Spirit living within. You see, when Romans 8 begins, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's just repeating what he's already said in these four chapters. That's the power of the gospel. We're not condemned anymore. But then he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. So here's this, this contrast. There is a law of sin and death. It's, it's the, law, the law, whenever I hear God's word, I rebel. 
But then, says Paul, a new law has come into being. I want you to think about it this way. You know, there is a law called the law of gravity. It necessitates that every time you jump off a building, you're going to fall downwards, not up. But there is another law. It's called the law of lift. And that's the reason why airplanes are allowed to, you know, are able to take off from the ground. The law of gravity is still in effect, but there is another law that supersedes that one. And that's precisely what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. There is a law of the Spirit that takes you beyond the law of sin and death. Your flesh might continue to militate against God, but a power has been given to you now that is greater than what your flesh can produce. See, watch verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh. That is, you're not united to the flesh, but in the Spirit. You're united with the Spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And that's really where all of this is going. The more that we concentrate on the life of the Spirit, the more that we rely on his power, the more that we learn about what the Holy Spirit is doing, who the Holy Spirit is, and the more that we learn to respond to his promptings, the more that we find that the power of the flesh is rolled back. You know, this is the reason why if we continue to walk in Christ, eventually we find that we're becoming more and more like Christ. Some of those sinful attitudes that we once held and that so entrapped and ensnared us are beginning to roll away. And then having said all of that, when Paul comes to the end of Romans 8, he says, I'm reading verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And, and then he tells us, you know, in the present, the Spirit helps us in our weakness and so forth. But the point is, the Holy Spirit's life in us is a down payment of the eternal life to come. I've already now begun to taste the eternal life that I will have when I am in heaven. I've begun to taste it in choosing Christ and turning my back on evil. That's the power of the gospel. That's the content of these four wonderful chapters in the book of Romans. Hi, and welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, a great message today, but I have to say, there's so much in the book of Romans that you're covering, and I'd have to say, you've, you've done a great full-length series. In fact, I think we discovered 16 weeks long. Yes, 80 messages. Segments, that was 80 which, messages. Which is fantastic. <laughs> so if you're thinking you're going through it fast, there's an opportunity. You yeah. can get that full series and go in-depth with it. Uh, but let me ask you a question about this whole freedom thing. I think there's a lot of people who, who have given their lives to the Lord, and then, then they really struggle because they can't get over this sin thing. And they think, how can I follow Christ? How can I be a believer if I keep on falling into sin? Yeah, and, and we need to know that, 
you know, when we're habitually sinning, we do doubt our salvation. There's probably a reason for that. It's the Holy Spirit speaking into our own hearts to saying, you know, you can't continue to live in sin. That is the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So if we would continue to resist that speaking of the Holy Spirit, there are all sorts of things that we ought to be concerned about. But having said all of that, I think the starting place for a believer is when we sin, don't fall into despair. I mean, read Romans 5 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation, or that's Romans 8 verse 1, but Romans 5 verse 1 as well. So we, we take for granted the truth of the gospel, and then we say to the Lord, listen, Lord, forgive me and help me to know how to rely on your Holy Spirit. And take Romans 8 seriously, study it in depth, and you'll find out how to listen to his promptings. And so we shouldn't we shouldn't sort of wallow in our guilt then because that'll just be a progressive increasing thing. Yeah, let's wallow in the cross. Yes. Let's wallow in the cross. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to uh, uh, next week and next week we're going to be talking about what? Uh, we're going to talk about the progress of the gospel. How is it that the gospel continues to go forward? What means does God use to bring the gospel to the whole world? Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week here on Truth and Life Today. Look forward to seeing you then.